Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com It's the Wonky Show. We talk Skidmore Talking Research, what politicians think of universities, there's a new book on social mobility, and the only university rankings that matter. It's all coming up. There's a bit of consensus around uh, needing to respond to changing skills needs. So half of MPs think new courses in these areas should be a priority. Um, But what those courses look like uh, varies. So Labour MPs tend to prioritise representation and mental health provision, uh, whereas Conservatives are more like... Welcome to The Wonky Show, your direct way into higher education, policy, people and politics. I'm Rachel Firth, Dick Sweet, coming to you live from our event, Rules of Engagement, and here to table an early day motion on higher education policy. As usual, we have three fabulous guests. In Cheltenham, we have Sarah Barmiller, Head of Insight for UCAS Media. Sarah, give us your highlight of the week, please. Oh, my highlight of the week is actually a new data product that my team have been developing, which will help providers understand where they land at A-level results day. So it provides them a really good insight as to where their gaps are going to be in clearing, which is available through UCAS Media right now. Little plug there. I like that at the start of the show. <laughs> and in Ormskirk, we have Vice President Academic at Edgehill University Students Union, Luke Meyer. Luke, your highlight of the week, please. Hi. So, um, I mean, my highlight is much less worthy than Sarah's, um, but I'm on crutches this week. But one of our student volunteers gave me a bedazzler so I can make my crutches fabulous. So I'm very excited by that. <laughs> what is it? What is a bedazzler? Well, it's like it just adds little gems to, to things. So like I've got like notebooks covered in gems. Everything's very sparkly. And also coming to us live from our event, Rules of Engagement, we have Wonky's associate editor, David Kernahan, sometimes known as DK. DK, give us your highlight of the week, please. Well, um, it has to be rules of engagement. This is going to be a great event. I'd like you all to know out there in listener land that I am missing hearing Matt Chorley so I can speak to you here. So I'd like a, a little bit of respect for that, please. Um, in the wider world, I would, I really enjoyed Roger Scruton's intervention on universities this week. Uh, apparently they're so full of left-wing thought that we should just close them all down. Right. In his second of four speeches on the topic, Chris Skidmore, Minister for University Science and Research, launched the government's International Research and Innovation Strategy, which is a key part of achieving the government's target of 2.4% of GDP on research and development by 2027. Also this week, Chris Skidmore has called on the sector to adopt the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism, which the UK voted against adopting the definition just a few months ago. So DK, can you take us through this in Malaya, please? So it's been a busy week for Chris Gidmore. As you say, at the start of the week, we saw the launch of the international strategy. Um, this is essentially a prospectus for uh, UK higher education's research capacity. It sets out the ways in which we hope to work collaboratively across the world and sets out the unique 
the unique aspects of uh, higher education in the UK and what it can bring to research and research uh, collaborations. It's all kind of very much motherhood and apple pie stuff. Um, a few years ago, we wouldn't have needed um, a strategy like this. And it is, um, although it's great to see uh, the minister and the DfE getting behind the sector, it is a little sad that we do need to do something like this. Um so also this week, Chris has been speaking in the strangest debate in Parliament that I've ever seen in my life, uh, the final um, statutory instrument that enacts uh, the Higher Education and Research Act 2017. Uh, that was discussed on the floor on the, of the House for reasons that I don't entirely understand. He had a scrutiny hearing with the Commons Education Select Committee, which was as interesting as these things always are. And just, uh, I mean, just breaking as we uh, put this podcast out, uh, he's called on the sector to adopt the IHRA, that's the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance uh, definition of anti-Semitism. This is seen very much as the definition of anti-Semitism that should be widely accepted. It's the most complete, it's the most wide-ranging. You might recall a few months back there was a massive controversy about the Labour Party adopting it, but adding their own little extra explanations about it. Um, it's an interesting move from uh, Chris. I think it is great that he is keen to see anti-Tentmanism tackled in the sector. And like all of us, um, he feels there is no place at all for any form of anti-Semitism or racism or any kind of other prejudice in the sector. I think we could all get behind that. But insisting on one particular definition, it does feel a little like it might... Uh, start a couple of arguments in a few places it remains to be seen of course i mean obviously this hasn't landed yet as we speak mm. no indeed very much a live issue uh sarah what's your take on mr skidmore's interventions this week i think it's um this particularly on the anti-semitism side that it's a really interesting debate and one that um as dk was just mentioning the 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 concept that we all want to be fair and equitable and there to be no bias and judgment whatsoever is, is a theme that you'll hear a lot through this podcast, I'm sure. So I think making a stand um, to say that we should be adopting this definition is quite a powerful statement. But I think the point that DK made is really valid that this will probably provoke quite a lot of question and more debate than it will successfully help answer at the moment. Yeah, no, I think it's uh, it's positive as well. I, I think it was disappointing that UK voted against adopting it, um, especially since NUS adopted it like two years ago, and it's uh, usually more challenging to get things uh, through <laughs> through NUS. Um, but it, it, I think you know it comes within this broader tendency to to sort of ignore the people most affected um, by these things. And and uh, I mean, the government yesterday rejected the uh, APPG definition of Islamophobia put forward by Muslim groups, and it's going through parliament today i think so you know with with hate crime on the rise i just think it's uh it's important that the leaders both in the sector and outside it uh start to listen really um i was just thinking it would be a good time to think about what people think of chris skidmore as a minister more generally i mean it's been uh, getting on for five and a half six months since he was appointed we've seen him in action in a few places and a few uh, settings. I kind of feel like his style of interventions have been a lot more uh, uh, collegiate, a lot more consensual than 
his predecessors. And I feel like the contrast between him and uh, Damien Hines is interesting. As we are at the Rules of Engagement event today, it would be interesting just to see how the sector are feeling about the current minister. Right, let's see who's been blogging for us this week. Hi, I'm David Bagshaw-Cope, Director of Strategic Change and Planning at Oxford Brookes University, and I've written a blog on why universities need to act as if we truly believe there's a climate and environment emergency. There are two reasons why I think we need to do this. First, the next generation expects us to take this issue really seriously. Greta Thunberg asks, why should I study when I have no future? Polls show that concern about climate change in the UK is at a record high, and that half of British consumers want companies to take a stand on issues that they care about. Second, Collectively, we're large and we can make a difference. There are over 400,000 people employed in UK's universities with around 2.3 million students. Reducing the negative impact of our operations is necessary, but perhaps more importantly, we can make hugely positive changes through the contribution of our research, teaching and public engagement. So if you enjoy my blog on Wonky, please comment on it, tweet it and talk to your colleagues. Let's make something happen. I'm Beth Button and I'm a campaign manager at University UK. Um, I'm currently at the pleasure of delivering the Made at Uni campaign, which is aiming to bring to life the impact that UK universities have on people's everyday lives. Um, and my blog this week is uh, my reflections on what this campaign has taught me. Um, it's taught me a little bit about how we should approach communicating to the public that I'm looking forward to sharing with you all. Um, I think I've found that uh, we should be using personal storytelling to show how we all benefit, um, not just those who attend university. Um, we should find advocates for our messages. Um, and importantly, I've concluded by finding that there's strength in unity and I'm looking forward to you all reading it. Next up, as we are live from our event, Rules of Engagement, we talk about how the sector can better engage with politicians and the media. As part of the event, we commissioned some bespoke research by Comres on what politicians think of universities. So Luke, um, why don't you kick us off on this one? Yes, so this is our insight into what MPs believe uh, universities should prioritise. Um, so there's some really interesting headlines. Uh, there's there's a bit of consensus around uh, needing to respond to changing skills needs. So half of MPs think new courses in these areas should be a priority. Um, but what those courses look like uh, varies. So Labour MPs tend to prioritise representation and mental health provision, uh, whereas Conservatives are more likely to prioritise institutions collaborating with industry uh, and international outreach. Um, the most interesting area that MPs want to hear about is widening participation and social mobility, um, although Labour MPs are more interested than Tories in hearing about that. Um, and I think it's uh, it's important stuff for anyone in the sector looking to lobby MPs. And Mark highlighted some of the, the pitfalls that VCs in particular fall down on uh, last month. No, indeed, Ian. I can highly recommend that blog. Of course, I would say that I'm biased, but on wonky.com, um, our uh, editor-in-chief, Mark Lee, wrote a great blog um, a couple of weeks ago um, about the, uh, the, the the pitfalls that the sector often falls down when engaging with politicians. Um, Sarah, what was uh, your take on this? Well, I found the, the, the comment from Mark Leach really, really quite funny in that uh, he was describing some beautiful scenarios of how there was many opportunities for people to engage with politicians and wider, but how that all of those were basically uh, not utilised to their full extent, I think it's polite to say. So I think my reflection on this is that uh, I think politicians and the wider media need to understand a lot more about the sector. I'm, I'm only two years into the sector and have had an awful lot of learning and every day still for me is something, an opportunity to learn more about what this incredible sector. 
I think there's also a bit of a tendency to think that we're all a bit special and a bit different and that each institution is, is unique in its own right. But there's a, an awful lot of things that, that make us quite common in, in that. And I think we need to galvanise ourselves better to be able to present what some of those um, issues absolutely are. So I think for me, it's it's really interesting that this is an opportunity that we're missing a little bit, that we are, we've all got different agendas and they're, they're slightly different. So I definitely think this is a prime time to open up some debate about this. Um I feel like the sector needs to think about what it wants to achieve by communicating particularly with members of parliament and the messages that it is uh, sending them. I mean, I'm uh, fascinated in this uh, comrade stuff in the graphs that look at the differences between parties, that if you are talking about um, widening participation, widening access, um, you probably want to be talking to Labour MPs. If you want to be talking about collaborating with business and industry, uh, you want to be talking to the Conservatives. Um, it seems um, um, actually none of the parties are particularly likely to want to hear things about international outreach and expansion, which I think is really interesting, uh, given that so much of the tenor of the communications of the sector have been about international recruitment, uh, working internationally, global collaboration. It's not necessarily something that is top of MPs' uh, uh, priorities. So I, I think that, I mean, universities need to be careful about the message that they're putting across, um, especially now in the lead up to the Orga review. Uh, we can compare the way uh, uh, universities came across in the uh, 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 Brexit debates, which, let's be honest, I mean, universities came across uh, terrible. They came across as shrill, as uh, dogmatic, as completely focused on their own bottom line. It was not a good look for universities. And in the the uh, run-up to Orga, we're already starting to see a lot of the kind of HE against FE stuff that uh, Chris uh, Skidmore highlighted yesterday um and it just feels like we've not really learned the lessons of that campaign uh stuff around the uh civic university the local role um i think is really really important and we have started making more noise on that but it's still kind of very much an undercurrent to the general communications of the sector to parliament which are primarily about money or the lack of it Mm. And I think it will be interesting to know what our learners would actually want us to be conveying as well on their behalf, because that's a voice that we don't often hear much from. It's true. I mean, the NUS lobbying operation is kind of very separate from the rest of the sector. Often we can be at uh, uh, cross purposes. I mean, Luke would probably know more about this than me. Yeah, it's true. And I think um, I think. The stuff around the civic university in particular is really helpful because we need to have this united front in terms of advocating the the public good that the HG brings, uh, particularly with all of the Brexit stuff going on. And, um, and I think we really need some champions of HE in Westminster as well. And, and so the way we engage with politicians is so important. And, and you're right that um, the way NUS engages is is uh, distinct from other bodies and there isn't that joined up approach i think um i was reading recently actually about the tory leadership contenders and how the more moderate ones might be thinking about promoting the role of universities whereas obviously the the hardliners are gonna more be more likely to attack um so there is scope here i think to be to be talking about this stuff but uh yeah i'm, I'm not sure we're doing it at the moment right let's see who else has been blogging for us this week 
Hi, my name's Claire Alexander and I'm a professor of sociology at the University of Manchester. Um, I've recently written a piece for the Wonky website, which is um, on our migration story, which is a teaching resource and website uh, aimed at exploring diversity in the history curriculum and supporting teachers to, to teach more diverse histories in classes. Um, the Migration Story website comes out of 10 years of research with partners um, at the University of Cambridge and the Runnymede Trust, which has been looking at how we teach histories in schools and how we develop a more inclusive curriculum, which focuses particularly on Britain as a country of migration. Um, the implications for higher education, I think, are twofold, partly because across the university sector, there's been increasing concern around the lack of ethnic diversity, um, particularly in history, but also in politics and geography and sociology, all of which disciplines are doing a lot of work on um, diversity, particularly ethnic and racial diversity, in their curriculum and in their staffing and in their student profiles. And secondly, it links to broader issues and campaigns around decolonizing the curriculum. So our key argument in developing the website has been threefold. Firstly, that British history is a history of migration and has always been a history of migration and of change for the last 2,000 years. Secondly, that you can't understand modern Britain um, without this history and that British culture, identity, language and so on are all completely um, unimaginable without this history of migration and the contribution of migrants from everywhere. And thirdly, that this needs to be reflected in how we think about our national identity and our national institutions. Um, so we've worked with a number of museums, for example. And universities in particular, I think, are a key part of reflecting and pushing this change and bringing it to the kind of public consciousness. Next up, we talk about a new book on social mobility. But before we get into that, I want to tell you about a new Wonky Plus subscription, giving you and your team even more essential HE policy insight and access to extra Wonky benefits. Along with the Wonky Day they delivered to your inbox at 8am every day, you'll get access to the termly Wonky Briefing, an horizon scan and a sense check about everything happening in HE policy. Ideal for those who can't follow every twist and dirty turn. And as a Plus subscriber, you get exclusive free access to our monthly event, Wonky Live, so you can keep up to date with all the moving and shaking in HE policy in person with Team Wonky and experts from across the sector. You get free use of the Wonky Jobs Board, plus everyone from your organisation gets discounted rates on Wonky events and early access to tickets, including Wonkfest, which always sells out quickly. So for more information, contact us on briefing at wonky.com. That's briefing at wonky.com. Or you can visit the website wonky.com forward slash plus. Next, a book is being published on the end of aspiration. The book highlights, even though we've had a huge expansion in the number of people entering higher education, recent generations are now more likely to have moved down the occupational hierarchy compared to where their parents were at the same age than they are to move up. Wonky's own Jim Dickinson was at the launch, so let's take a listen. So I'm here with superhero Duncan Exley, uh, author of The End of Aspiration. Uh, Duncan, give us a sense of what the book's about. It's basically about the fact that the UK is presently experiencing net downward social mobility. We are now more likely to go down in the world than we are to go up in the world, and what's sitting behind that. And what really is behind that is that the people who did in a previous generation experience social mobility tended to have some stability in their lives uh, when they were growing up. They tended to be able to mix socially and to meet posh friends who would broaden their horizons. Um, they 
accessed opportunities that didn't cost something and quite often now we have toll roads on the route to opportunity and they access new opportunities that were coming up that room at the top of new jobs being opened up which isn't happening so much now one of the really compelling themes in the book is that lots of policy initiatives in different spaces, you know, either higher education or schools or um, in particular communities, don't join up properly. And I guess, you know, that part of that is a message for government. But, you know, lots of our readers work in particular slices of this uh, policy problem. What would your message be to those people who are working perhaps in WP and universities or in student unions or in a particular space about the need for kind of joined up thinking? Well, I think the most important thing is to to work with people who have experienced this. I wrote in a previous piece for one key, ladders are best designed by people who've had to climb one. And that is always something there. And particularly to talk to people about what they have experienced before. Not only the sorts of schools they went to, the sorts of things they learned, but also their confidence issues and the sorts of things that they don't know. But also going the other way, that people leave higher education very often and pretty much yeah, most of the people I interviewed experienced some feeling of drift because they didn't know where they were going afterwards and we know that career services in higher education are patchy and it's something that people from privileged backgrounds often don't need because their families can advise them people from other backgrounds really do need to know what options are out there because no one has told them so Sarah could you lead us off on this one please yeah, I think uh, my first reflection on this is to say that this book is obviously going to be a very valuable contribution to a, what is a very complex debate. Um, everyone here listening and everyone on the on the podcast here are all passionate about the transformational properties of higher education. And that's obviously our focus. But as as the recent Channel 4 documentary, for those of you who saw it, When I Grow Up, demonstrated, this these aspirational perceptions from young people can often be very different from a very early age, which is really quite a sad reflection. Therefore, I think this is something that, you know, HE aside, we need to really really examine and address from early years education and upwards. So it isn't it isn't as simple as what we can do in HE, but obviously it starts a lot earlier. And I think my second reflection really is around the role that UCAS has to play here, which really does question us quite a lot. And I think we can look at that from both the learners and obviously the HE providers perspective. Um, from learners, one thing I absolutely adore about UCAS and the reason why I work here is that we treat everybody the same. It's one of the absolute benefits of having a centralised admission service. So we make the process transparent and the same for absolutely all learners, irrespective of their background. And we're actually trying to progress this in two different ways at the moment, one of which is through better information and advice. And we're, we're we're really developing that at the moment um, and hopefully a new uh, portal for information and advice will go live towards the autumn. And we're also de developing our new application system, which will enable um, better self-declaration of information. So from a learner's perspective, it will ensure that they're being treated as a, a sort of an holistic individual rather than just another applicant. So I think that's, again, really, really strong from UCAS at the moment. Um, but then when we look at the HE providers, I think UCAS actually have two roles in this, I suppose, one of which is to actively help providers make informed choices about applicants, which obviously can help them get into university in the first place. And we do that through the provision of um, contextual information. And we've all seen the debate recently on Wonky around MEM and Polar and these 
these are obviously something that are, are foundational for, for what UCAS provide. And I think the other role that we re- that we really have is to act as a bit of a mirror to the sector. So we publish over well over two and a half million data points each cycle, which everyone I'm sure listening to this will be well versed on. So we help inform the debate. Um, we also help providers to actually measure activities and and actually sort of plot the trajectory and where they're trying to um, to get to. So this is a really interesting debate. And it's obviously quite sad when we reflect upon the sort of key tenant of, of Duncan's book. But I think we are making some strides strides here for the better. But it, for all of this, it's all about sort of tiny marginal gains that we can be making because we're, we're the, almost the very end of a educational process, which we've got to address it from the, from the start, really. Uh, DK, I mean, talking of a million data points, you're a man who likes over a million data points. Um, what was your <laughs> kind of uh, uh, thoughts on this? Um, I, I'm actually not going to talk about our data. I feel like this is a much wider issue about something that is happening in society in the UK more generally. There was uh, there have been comments recently in the press about the fact that we're moving towards a more US model of inequality, where the the uh, uh, vast majority of people have kind of very, very little, and a few people have absolutely loads. Um, the idea that people are, are more likely to slide down, I think, plays into that conceptualization of the way society is uh, heading. It was uh, John Major, I think, who uh, told us that we were all middle class now, and I would hesitate to say that that is necessarily true. Um, I think, I mean, obviously I've not read the book yet because it's only just out, but I I have bought it and I'm looking forward to reading it. Um, I'd like what it, it was saying about aspirations, the idea that you need a solid base, you need to feel secure and safe and nurtured and cared for in order to aspire beyond that. It's kind of a basic Maslow's hierarchy of need stuff. If you've not got the hygiene factors in place, it's quite difficult to progress into self-actualization and i love the idea of the posh friend i don't know if anybody else picked that up i mean i had a posh friend and it is debatable actually whether i would have seriously considered university if it wasn't for my posh friend um and just the idea that we could as a society we seem to be less capable of social uh, mixing that the uh, divide between the well-off and the not so well-off seem to be growing and growing. We go to different places, we eat different foods, we watch uh, different uh, media, we listen to different people. And it really does uh, kind of worry me that it is possible higher education will be seen as some a good for the kind of people who shop at Waitrose. And it is so much more than that. It has such a lot more to offer. Yeah, I mean, I think um, I think a lot of what you say is, is, is important. There's, we're a decade on from uh, the spirit level that that book about equality being published, and they talked about how um, more unequal societies are have worse, you know, health, mental health, education, imprisonment, all kinds of areas of society, and it does it does seem worrying that um, we're not we're not getting better. Um, just thinking about the sector in particular, last time I was on the podcast, we had the UCAS data, and we were talking about admissions. Um, I think it is interesting that. Uh, Duncan Exley, that the author talks about um, admissions as well, and talks about how HE needs to get better at recognising prior experience. Um, I think it is it is worth thinking about, you know, more contextualised offers and, and admissions procedures as well. Um, yeah, 
I mean, absolutely. It's about applicants' potential rather than mm. just their attainment when they go into university. And it's, like I said, it's about treating individuals as an individual rather than just, you know, what their predicted grades look like. Now it's time for Yes, But Does It Correlate? Here to set this week's correlation question live is Wonky's Associate Editor, David Kernahan. Hi, we're just about to move into talking about league tables. So this is a very special Yes, But Does It Correlate? today, featuring the ever-controversial world of the rankers. I've plotted this year's institutional ranking in the Complete University Guide against the ranking in the Times Good University Guide. The first three places were the same in each this year, but what about the rest? How similar a result do the different methodologies give? Yes, but does it correlate? I think they will be, I think they're kind of, I think the way that your mind works, DK, this is, so I'm using, I'm being counterintuitive, I think it will not correlate because one would assume there had to be some kind of loose correlation between how these things are, um, uh, you know, are, are graded and such. But I think after the first three, there is not a correlation. Um, so I think they both have a lot of similar metrics. I don't know about the weighting, but I know they they both look at NSS and ref and like spending on facilities and stuff. So I'm going to say yes. Oh, I think I might agree with Luke because I think some of the while while the constituent parts might be flawed in their own way, they're all equally as flawed. So I suspect it might be <laughs> correlating. That is a lovely position. And yes, there is a correlation. R squared is 0.86, which is a, a strong correlation, but not a staggeringly strong uh, uh, correlation, which surprised me. Clearly, the two tables are using slightly different methodologies. For example, the Times looks at teaching quality and the student experience as two separate NSF-derived measures. But the CUG looks at student satisfaction as the sole measure it takes from NSS. But the CUG examines research quality and research intensity the Times looks at just research quality. Um, so they tell broadly the same story, which um, makes me think, as you say, that the rankings are are using the same or similar data. But it is, um, it is different enough, especially in the middle part of the table, to make me think that there is something else interesting uh, going on. As usual, the, the uh, graph is on the podcast page on the wonky website for you to play with if you'd like and for the completest i've taken the 2019 ranking for the times and the 2020 for cug which are the most recent available and i've only plotted institutions where uh they feature in both tables and finally this week the only league table that counts was published yes the 2019 ranking of universities based on availability of car parking spaces is now live on wonky.com so dk as the architect of this prestigious ranking could you walk us through this one please so an astonishing number of people appear to have taken its uh, this ranking seriously. So I just want to say up front at the top, this is not a serious way of ranking universities. I'm not saying a university with um, an easier parking experience by these metrics are any better. I'm not saying that the metrics are any good because they're from the Hisa Estate record, which, as we all know, is for entertainment purposes only. <laughs> and that's where I get my kicks, the Hisa Estate record. That's on my, every well, Saturday night. Friday that's night, where yeah. I, Oh, what a treat. Well, you're going to really enjoy Yes, But Does It Correlate for the next few weeks. That's all I'm going to say. So um, what I'm, I'm trying to do here is to highlight, first of all, the... Uh, 
ridiculousness of the uh, rankings industry and the strange way in which people in HE uh, respond to rankings. I also took a little shot at the University of the Year idea because, um, I mean, Rittle University College is the proud uh, possessor of the title of the wonky car parking University <laughs> of the Year 2020. Uh, I actually did ring their press office and tell them. I don't think they were that impressed. <laughs> Um, but I mean, just looking more generally, you can take any combination of metrics. You can make them into something broadly meaningful. I mean, the underlying metric of car parking ease is just the, uh, is just the demand for car parking against a supplier car parking. Um, but I still also think that car parking is an integral part of the student and staff experience of higher education. I know I've been to meetings and not actually attended the meetings because I've been unable to find a place to park my car. Yeah, and I echo is, that. Yeah, someone yeah, who travels is, the length and breadth of the country visiting um, universities, it can be an incredible challenge. Which permit you've got, which particular mm. space you've got, you're parked 17 buildings away from the meeting and things like that. And, you know, actually, as as a SU officer at a small town uni, I'm going to come out in defence of the 2019 wonky car parking rankings because, I mean, I, most of my complaints from students are nothing to do with their course or facility. It's just about the car parking and the availability. So, you know, this is the future. It's, it's critical. But uh, Sarah, I'd be interested in your tip more broadly on rankings because you have a quite an interesting position in the sector in that, you know, the, you're the, the, the people who are helping uh, people access universities and, and, and be recruited into universities. So I, I wonder what your, your kind of general thoughts on kind of uh, the use of league tables and how applicants use them and, and whether that's, you know, a good or, or bad thing, whether they're good at signposting certain stuff. I think they certainly are. We, what we've seen through our research is that different groups of applicants use use league tables in that generic sense in different ways. So when you're looking at, for instance, international students, that comes up really high in their list of priorities. When you're looking across the board to all applicants, the most important thing that they go on when they're making their choices is around the, the content of their modules and what they're actually be studying, which I suppose is quite reassuring for all of us in the HE sector. But interestingly, the second thing that comes out as being the most important is actually student reviews. So, like I say, different groups of students look at different things and weight them in, in terms of importance. But number one is was what they're studying, and number two is what other people, their peers, are saying about university. So, I'm a really, I'm really a passionate advocate for the fact that we need to listen to what the students are saying and engage with the students in that sort of dialogue because it's incredibly important. But league tables obviously play that play their part. Uh, Luke, I mean, you uh, represent what tens of thousands. Uh, forgive me, Edge Hill. I don't know how how big it's, but I imagine you you can speak uh, authoritatively for all of them. Um, but in terms of kind of how, how they kind of interact with their university, do they care about where they're ranked? I mean, do you care? Is it? I mean, of course, you're going to care about your car parking ranking now, I imagine. <laughs> yeah, so it's uh, 15,000. Um, and well, I think that we're very proud. Our institution is very proud of having like TEF, for instance. Um, and I'm not sure that our students on the ground uh, are that that interested um we we do celebrate when when there are positives particularly on on rankings that are more powered by student voice um so things like what uni which are like driven by by student submissions um but i think one of the more broad issues is that a lot of the rankings aren't built on things that that students think are valuable so if you look at like teaching quality rankings for instance they're not looking at the areas that we know from from surveys and polling students value the most um so maybe if we did then then they might yeah i mean all of this i mean it is if you'd 
permit me a little uh, uh, diversion, it reminds me of uh, Jean Baudrillard's idea of the empty signifier. It's the fact that, I mean, you are sevenths or sixteenths or in the top 50 or whatever else, and that is much more important than what the uh, ranking actually means, what uh, actually underlies it. It's a status symbol. We see that definitely in our research on TEF, because obviously TEF is, is, is a really positive thing for the sector. But when you speak to learners, they actually haven't really understood exactly what TEF is measuring and, how, and why you might be interested in it. However, a lot of them look at it and go, oh, well, that's gold. So that must be better than that one. So they, they, exactly as you're saying, it's a, it's a sort of, you know, gold is best. Therefore, that's what I'm going to be applying to. It's condensing a very, very complex uh, data-driven value judgment into a very, very uh, simple one. And it's actually baking in a lot of prejudices, a a lot of received ideas. And that kind of concerns me slightly. I mean, the the, uh, research I like best on this, it was done in 2013 by Hefke, and they looked at the way students use the information that's out there about uh, uh, universities when they make application choices. And for the most part, they don't. They don't use the information at all. As you say, they talk to their family, their friends. And I really like that idea that um, a key part of um, a decision is something like the open day, the prospectus, the chance to actually see the place and experience the place. It becomes a much more human uh, choice and um, a much less algorithmic choice so that is about it for this week remember to delve deeper into anything we've discussed today you'll find the links in the show notes and don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast automatically just search for the wonky show via itunes or your favorite android podcast directory or you can find the feed that you need on wonky.com forward slash podcast and if you fancy appearing as a guest on the wonky show do drop us an email on team at wonky.com and we'll be in touch so thanks to Sarah, to Luke and to DK and to everyone at Team Wonky for making this happen. And until the next week, stay ranking. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.